0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode I'm joined by none other than our permanent host for most of our programs, Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, as always, it's a pleasure.
0: We're going to be getting into Sophocles Part 2. We promised this in our last episode, in which we discussed Greek tragedy in general, Sophocles in particular, and the first of the three Theban plays, Oedipus the King, Oedipus Rex, as many people know. And today we're going to get into the second two plays of this uh, cycle, as promised, and we're going to, we're going to get right into it. Dr. Fleming with, uh, Adepis at Colonis. Colonus, can you set the scene a little bit? Again, we can't assume that our readers have read these plays. We're actually encouraging them to read these plays. So can you give us a, a brief synopsis of the play before we start discussing it?
1: Yes, they will flunk the course, of course, if they don't read them. <laughs> the, um, the first i should point out that um we are we're discussing them in the dramatic the order of dramatic dates in uh, the order of composition uh that the Antigone is the first play even though it's the last play uh of the dramatic date because antigone begins after uh, after the uh, war between the two brothers Theocles and Polynices. The first play, the next play is the Oedipus, and the last play is the Oedipus at uh, at Colonus. So it is uh, that which is, in fact, Sophocles' last play that we know of, probably the last play he wrote. In this, this is it's a play written by an old man who has had a chance to reflect on uh, a very. Uh, a very uh, stormy period in the life of athens and uh, and an exciting period. Uh, so the, he brings on uh, Oedipus, who cannot be anywhere near as old as he is portrayed in the play. You know, this is only a few years after his expulsion as a as a very young man, So the time uh, from from his uh, the city of Thebes, which he had ruled as king. Ar- arriving there as a unknown stranger and marrying the queen and begetting uh, four children two sons two daughters he has uh, when he discovered that he had killed his father uh, ignorantly uh, and married his mother in ignorance and and had begotten these poor uh, children uh, what he was, of course, for a while tolerated within Thebes, but he had blinded himself, and so he was an object of pity and uh, disgust. The Greeks didn't have a great uh, compassion for people who were ugly or disfigured. And, uh, you know, Christians are taught to pity the unfortunate. The Greeks more or less despised them. And therefore, for example, in one of the great works of Greek literature, of all literature, at the, in the, uh, the Odyssey uh, Odysseus, uh, wandering as uh, having fought in the Trojan War for ten years and wandered for ten years more, comes home uh, disguised as a beggar. Now, you know, in in uh, our our Lord came, you know, despised and rejected, and uh, and and uh, the, the, in, not, in in a very humble circumstance. But for the Greeks, it's almost obscene for them to think of a beggar as a superior human being. And so obviously the Odyssey set out to challenge that. So anyway, Oedipus gets, depending on the version of the story you read, he has a quarrel with his sons. In one early version, they give him the cold shoulder. That is, they literally give him the, a bad piece of meat at the banquet. They don't treat him as the, their father and the former king. They don't treat him with proper uh, time, which is the Greek word for honor or respect. He's, they, dis, they dishonor him. He kicks the table over and uh, curses them. And, uh, and so the curse within the family is now repeated. Sophocles does not allude to that. He does say that when they felt they didn't need him, he was driven out. And now they feel they need him, then they're going to, Creon, his brother-in-law, is going to try to take him back. So he has wandered with his daughters, especially with Antigone. The other daughter, Ismene, has been staying home much of this time to look after family interests. So Antigone, who is the portrait of the faithful daughter, both in this play and in the Antigone which bears her name, Antigone accompanies this broken-down old man who is portrayed as being roughly, I would say, 80 years old. Uh, If we were to try to reconstruct how old Oedipus would really be, uh, well, all this time can't have passed. He he has to be uh, at most 45, at most. And uh, there's no way, in fact, by the time sequence he should even have grown children. But even assuming that he has these grown children, he is still in his 40s not uh, not, uh, not a broken-down old man. Well, then, who is the broken-down old man? Why, why, on what did Sophocles base uh, this portrait? Well, obviously, Sophocles. I mean, he was a very old man at this time, and an old man who was being betrayed by his two sons. I mean, I don't like to read personal biography into plays, but if you have two sons who are taking you to court swearing your known compos mentis so that they can get their hands on your property before you kick the bucket, you might develop some feelings of bitterness about disloyal children. <laughs> and uh, the, the play clearly reflects some of the bitter lessons Sophocles has learned about people who are supposed to be loyal and then fail in that loyalty.
0: Well, and I'm sure as our, our, our listeners and our Fleming Foundation readers are hearing you describe this, we can't escape that you're talking about parts of King Lear, so very yes. obviously, right? We can't escape those links between, between these plays, and, and that might be a discussion maybe for a show that we do on King Lear. We don't want to get into that today because we have, as you've already alluded to, a lot to talk about here. Yeah. Um, yes. So you're talking about this old man. Can I ask you, what has Oedipus learned in this time period since our last play, and what has he still not learned?
1: Yes, it, it's interesting. You know, um, it's uh, a prior question is, does Sophocles assume that his audience is familiar with the previous play, the, the, the Oedipus Rex, the Oedipus Tyrannus. And the answer is maybe, maybe not. Probably he assumes they know the basic story, but that was many, you know, that was decades earlier. And so he's free to reinvent details. And we can talk about one of those, these, uh, Oedipus' account of the murder in this play, the murder of his father is quite different from the account we get in the in the previous play. In the, in the Oedipus, he uh, to begin on the negative side. The Oedipus in the first play is shown as a brilliant, headstrong, passionate man. He is, and the Greeks understood this kind of personality very well. Because despite all that the Greeks wrote about moderation in all things, self control, self knowledge, the reason they 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 talked about those things is because they were the most passionate people that we know of in the history of the human race. They, their tendencies were always to run off into an extreme, and so by but by an act of moral discipline and by a system of loyalties, they they tried to curb the. These passions, but it's a little bit like uh, I don't know if you know how to tune a piano. You cannot tune a piano perfectly the way you can tune a violin. In other words, if you tune it going up, and then the notes don't correspond when you go down because it's a it's a it, it's a you you have to have you can't have these uh, eighth tones and things which you can get in the uh, in a in a violin scale. So you have to tune it up then you t- you tune the you, tune the-, you tune the octaves you tune the fifths you tune the fourths you tune the thirds I'm not a piano tutor but I mean I, wa- I watch them do it and they constantly go back and forth cuz it can never be perfect that kind it's called tempering and and, uh, and the tempering is what Greek culture did for the Greeks, that is, by constantly having to, well, on the one hand, I'm going to be a great man, but on the other hand, I have to be loyal to my family, and these things go back and forth, back and forth. Oedipus, in this, at the beginning of this play, is still a headstrong man of passion. When he decides that he wants to do something, uh, he, uh, he, di- he does it. Now, one of, some of the things he has learned, he's learned that he is perhaps not the only person on, in the planet. He's not the only person of worth that other people have, uh, have lives and countries and loyalties to. And he has learned a lot about uh, the importance of friendship and loyalty. And friendship, of course, is at the base of all Greek moral relations. If you were to ask somebody, Christian or non-Christian, today, well, what is morality? Morality is making judgments about what is right and wrong according, by the use of right reason. For a, a Greek would say, morality consists of keeping the rule, treating those who are bound to you, treating friends and family as they're supposed to be treated. And that's, the, that, that's, the, that's a far more fundamental principle for them than it is for us. For them, honor thy father and thy mother is the beginning of all wisdom. For us, it's an important thing to do, but it's not at the foundation of modern morality, which is purely rational. Mm-hmm. So Oedipus has learned many things, and the betrayal of uh, both his brother-in-law Creon and the betrayal of his sons, that is their betrayal of him, their, their, their refusal to treat him uh, with the respect that he as a father deserves. This has taught him, I think, a very powerful lesson that, about the need for loyalty. He was not always loyal, you know, in, uh, in the first play, the Oedipus Tyrannus. I mean, he basically threatens to put to death uh, his brother-in-law and threatens to torture the, uh, the, the oracle monger Tiresias. So he had been so passionate that he hardly could be just to others and fulfill his duties to them. He was a, he was a ruthless individualist. He is no longer a ruthless individualist, and he under, he begins to understand other people, and and is particularly reliant upon his two daughters.
0: I want to I want to go back to your mentioning of the rewriting of the 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 play. Obviously, as you say. Sophocles is is hedging his bets that maybe the audience is familiar with it. Because if not, the chorus gives us a, a brief preachy of, of yeah. the last play, right? But yes. But I feel a bit like uh, when I was watching Rashomon for the first time, the Kurosawa film. Who is reliable? Is Sophocles reliable? Is Oedipus reliable? I don't really know. I mean... Are we going to go back to the scene, and I can hear Oedipus' father giving us the story, well, you know, this punk was going to try to kill me. And then Oedipus is saying, well, you know, this guy was a real jerk. And uh, we don't really know.
1: No. I mean, what we do I- know is, in general, we know that um, that each tragedy is basically taking a theme and working it fresh as if nobody had ever written it before, although Euripides seems to play on our knowledge of other treatments but that that they did not feel compelled to follow a traditional version of the myth they felt perfectly free to uh, reinvent aspects of the story and change characters Euripides turns a lot of people who are supposed to be heroes into villains for example uh... and so there's constant rewriting it even within uh... uh an author he can treat uh, a character positively in one play and negatively in another he can reinvent details Even in a true trilogy, like uh, the only trilogy we have, that is three interrelated plays put on uh, in the same festival, we have the Oresteia of Aeschylus, and in the first play of the Oresteia, King Agamemnon is shown as arrogant, a braggart, to bully, and uh, someone who has sacked Troy and burned its temples and outraged its population. And he is, as Popeye the sailor would say, cruising for a bruisin'. And when he is killed at the end, we feel that some, some dark destiny has been fulfilled. Okay, switch a few minutes later to the beginning of the libation bearers, the cawiferi. In that play, his children mourn for him as the slaughtered great man who died unworthily because now we see him in a different light. So if Aeschylus can get away with this enormous switch, and by the way, I understand how it works and why he does it, and I approve the way he does it, because this, in fact, happens in real life. You go try going to a funeral for somebody who was a complete SOB in his life and listen to some of the some of the eulogies. <laughs> but um but you know it's perfectly but but it, but but Agamemnon now plays a different role. He's a murder victim who whose death must be avenged. So for for uh, Sophocles he's he's got a whole new take. You see the in in the in the Oedipus the, the center of the play is Oedipus' self-reliant atheism, his skepticism, his materialism. I'm a self-made man. I'm a child of fortune. I rely on nobody. Nobody helps me. I don't turn to anybody for nothing. You could imagine uh, him being a kind of Ayn Randian punk, you know, going on and on and on. Now, he is a man of great nobility of character, so I don't don't mean to trivialize it. And so when he tells the story of how he kills his father, and uh, we went over this a little bit last time, I mean, under my reading of Athenian law, and I've I've looked into this to to a, a large extent, my reading of Athenian law is, that uh if he were prosecuted in Athens for this event you know that a jury would probably convict him unless he could find some way of persuading them that he was justified but but he is the one who used deadly force and got carried away and this is there's no there's no it, it, it's unjustified whereas in in the play we're talking about now in the Oedipus at Colonus the old man says We all make mistakes, but, you know, anybody would have done what I did. I acted in self-defense. I didn't know it was my father. And I think we have to simply take that as a given in the play. Because if – and I think the reason Oedipus says this is so that we'll forget the earlier play and we'll see, yes, this man is a victim – as Agamemnon becomes a victim in the, in the second play of that trilogy, Oedipus is now a victim of, of grasping, selfish, greedy, disloyal people, and he, he is a man who's suffered, but he has done nothing that makes him a criminal. Therefore, everything they've done to him is unjust. Well, it is it does strike a modern reader a little bit like the great Kurosawa movie. And by the way, uh, as a as a very brief aside, I think that uh, Kurosawa, the film, the Japanese filmmaker, comes far closer to a Greek tragic way of understanding the world than most mo- than most modern writers.
0: Well, I obviously will promise a future podcast uh, discussing at least one or two of those films. Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, of good stuff to. To be discussed we need there.
1: to get we need to get Chef Garrett. Uh, he, I had seen half a dozen of them and liked them, but Garrett has seen all of them many times. It's his it's his favorite filmmaker by far. He forced me. He would come home from college and then from chef school. He would force me to watch very obscure Kurosawa movies, and that's that's how I grudgingly came to believe that he's a very great filmmaker.
0: Well, sounds like uh, sounds like he's related to you, you know. Forcing people to look at obscure things in order to get value. I think that's uh, that's something you've passed on. Then that's good. Well, I'm glad he picked up something, <laughs> and some cooking skills too. I might add.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, he cooks rings around uh, his, the whole family now, but uh, I still have to. He still doesn't know how to make scrambled eggs.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking uh, speaking of children of, of elderly men, uh, we have two daughters who are accompanying. Oedipus in this play what can we say about them what their roles are and obviously independent from Antigone cuz we're going to discuss her well we'll we'll discuss as many in, in the next play as well but what can we say about these these two uh women sister daughters uh of Oedipus
1: in um you know in the uh in the play which every which people would have seen uh, 30 years earlier um, and Antigone is brave and resourceful, intrepid, and Antigone is not disloyal, but she does not wish to go against the powers that be, and uh, Antigone regards her as disloyal. And, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the Antigone in this play. Both daughters are loyal, uh, but once again, Antigone takes the lead because she has actually followed her father in his misfortunes. All the, and Asmene is representing their interests and is spying for them back in Thebes. So it is very interesting. The girls are loyal and the sons are creeps. Mm.
0: Well, I now want to... Transfer us a bit to to Theseus uh, because we we've, we've been talking about Thebes, the the two sons, the two daughters, and Oedipus getting here, and we get to to this ground. I'm really fascinated by the character of Theseus because in these three plays, he seems to me, obviously not accidentally, to be the best man in any of these plays, and of course he's the the king of the Athenians. I suppose it's it's a, it's a bit of. A, it's a bit of tooting your own horn, but what is what about the character of Theseus? Dr. I mean, is there, is there something more that we should really get from him?
1: Well, there, there's a lot here. Uh, in the first place, historically, you know, Athens and Thebes had often been in conflict Partly because uh, they border each other, and so the Athenians were always moving in on to try to grab Theban territory. The Thebans would then ally themselves with a, an enemy of Athens. In the Peloponnesian War, Thebes was an ally of Sparta. But in the Persian War, you know, Thebes, as they say, medized. That is, she supported the Persians because the Persians were a far away threat, whereas Athens was a threat right on our doorstep. So Athenians didn't like Thebes, they didn't, uh, and so it's sort of funny that all this great literature and, uh, about, about Thebes is, uh, is written by Athenians, but they, they, the myth is one thing, but the reality was they, they, called, uh, they called the people of Boeotia, where Thebes is located, they called them swine because they raised pigs and they were fat, felt to be fat and stupid. So, uh, there's, a, there's and the conflict had reignited in late in Sophocles' life, so the tensions between Athens and Thebes at this point are very strong. And Thebes is being portrayed in this play as a place where people don't honor their kinfolks. People treat them as, uh, as if, because they treat them as if they're not friends. Now, remember the Greek word for friend, the primary form of friendship for the Greeks is kinship. So their idea, for their idea, their word "friend" means friend and family both together within one term. And when Oedipus, Oedipus is mistreated by his kinfolks, by his sons and his brother-in-law. This is the, this is the, this shows a disordered state. Just as, by the way, in uh, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, the incestuous union of Hamlet's mother with uh, her husband's brother. After after the husband has been uh, killed, and and their mistreatment of their son, and uh, and, the, and the, the the uncle's attempt to have the son murdered, all of this is a sign of a commonwealth that you know there's something rotten in Denmark, as uh, as uh, Hamlet says that the that there the, it's out, the kingdom is out of joint, and so here too Thebes, there's something wrong in Thebes. Thebes is a the commonwealth that is not. Being properly governed because of the, the the collapse of loyalty and friendship and the, the love of kinfolk. Now, obviously, this is going on in Athens uh, just as strongly as it is in Thebes, and so, in a way, Sophocles is uh, having his cake and eating it, too. He can describe the social collapse going on in late 5th century Athens, but attribute it to Thebes, and so he can more easily criticize it, but on the other hand, show what Athens is supposed supposed to be in the character of, first of all of the these loyal local people in colonus who are uh, god-fearing they fear the power of the local the 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 uh, the, the furies the areneus where, where oedipus and antigone have taken have uh, sought protection and their ruler who is a remarkably uh, dignified democratic ruler he he, acquies- he preserves local tradition. He defers to the opinion of the community. He is selfless. He's a protector. He has uh, he has great respect for this suffering foreigner. He recognizes his nobility. He can see that he has, you know, that the blood of the gods are in him, which is what Greek aristocrats had in the early days believed. So uh, Theseus, who of course is the uh, by legend is the son of the god Poseidon Theseus is a as the model Athenian gentleman he is what they would have called kalos kai agathos fair and good that is fair to look at and uh, of noble manners and and of and virtuous and so by studying him, you could he is the sort of man Sophocles is supposed to have been. He's reverent, he's religious, he is absolutely fearless. And if you try to bully him, his, respon- his response is to dig his heels in. He will not be budged from doing what's right. Interestingly, he is also a man who, unlike Oedipus, has his passions under control. And this is, of course, the Athenian ideal. It's the Greek ideal. But whereas Oedipus is begins to be pushy, begins to show his arrogance in telling, uh, telling Theseus what he has to do, Theseus will not take that. He will honor the stranger, but he will not take orders from anyone. And he gives Oedipus a few lessons in the manners of a gentleman. Yes, he's an amazingly positive character.
0: Well, and it's interesting because it's not just what Theseus does or what he says; it's what he doesn't. It's what he doesn't say. So there's there's that part in the play where Oedipus is so grateful he starts to reach out to touch Theseus, and he realizes what a terrible thing it would be for him to touch the king. Yeah, and he pulls back. Theseus doesn't mention this. He, he no, could very no. well have said, "What are you doing, you know, old man? Don't don't, don't come near me!" But we see in him. You not... you think you in, are in,
1: Michelle Obama? <laughs> right. Did you know who, who once hugged uh, the Queen of England.
0: <laughs> right. So he he's gracious enough to not say, you yeah. know, yeah. there. And again, the manners of a gentleman, not just in what he does and what he says, but what he doesn't. That sort of dissimulation that he's he's graceful and and, and kind. Uh, and, and in that, we see a couple with the Athenians, so not just from Theseus, we see from the people the chorus, which I find yeah. this chorus to be so expressive. Uh, yeah. they, they are really focusing on, on two things that I'd, I'd like to talk about. One is this respect for the religious ceremonies. We get this elaborate, What do you, you know, what do I need to do to purify myself? Well, you need to get this much water, it needs to have this much honey, you need to turn around, you need to do this, you need to be facing that way um what can you give us some insight into the Greeks uh, or, or perhaps specifically the Athenian look at the elaborate religious ceremony uh, and what that what that meant to them?
1: The um, Greek religion in general and Athenian religion about which we know a good city states this um, this is a, it is a very um, complex set Rituals and observances. The Greek word that we would translate "believe in the gods," nomizain tus theus, is uh, uh, that's a it's a misleading <laughs> way of translating. They didn't care what you thought. You were perfectly free to think there was no such thing as gods. That the, that the, uh, you weren't supposed to say this, but your mind was totally free. What mattered is how you behaved. Because the religion was not a private thing. It wasn't, you know, like uh, a Quaker sitting in his closet waiting for uh, revelation to strike him. All the religions were corporate. And uh, very much like, say, me- medieval Catholic and Orthodox churches, yeah, they were all corporate. And some of these, some of the religious customs, of course, are pan-Hellenic. So the the, the, group, the great festivals at Olympia and Delphi and elsewhere. Some of them were within a within a region. Some of them were specifically for a, a, a city or a commonwealth like Athens. So Athens every uh, four years would have the Greater path- Panathenaia, the procession which they would go and redecorate the, the the cult statue of Athena. Some in Athens, where we know a lot about it, there were rural shrines connected to neighborhoods called deems, which were treated almost like they had once been independent little villages. And there were also reli- uh, uh, religious bodies of kinfolk called fratries, brotherhoods. So, Every one of these, at every level of Athenian life, there were collective religious observances that made you who you were. And, and this included burial. You know, there's an old joke, that Southerners ask each other, they don't say, what do you do for a living? They say, where do your people bury? Well, in Athens, if you wanted to run for a certain office, you had to prove your citizenship The question the examining magistrate asked you is, where are your people buried? So uh, the the location of of Oedipus burial, you know, the fact that he's going to be buried within Attica, he's going to be buried at Colonus for an Athenian. This is defining who Oedipus is. So all of these things are collective. They're not up to your individual whim. It's not how you feel or what you think. You might, whatever you think, might be uh, might be totally rid- ridiculous. But if you go through the motions, it's sort of it's a little bit Jesuitical. You go through the motions, and everything is all right. You know when they uh, when Socrates was condemned, uh, just at, just within a few years, you know of, of of this play, Socrates was condemned for introducing new gods. Uh, he, the, 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 it's hard to prove this on Socrates. We know he shot his mouth off, but uh, both Plato and Xenophon claim that in public he behaved correctly. So the collective nature of the worship and the attention to details and the irrelevance of your personal feelings, uh, these are all really important aspects. And there's something I find very beautiful and very moving in what we know about these and and this play – Tells us probably more than any other work of Athenian literature. This play gives us a glimpse into sim, into the simple piety of these people. And remember, Colonus is where uh, is imagined as a very rustic deem, and the, the the landscape, which is lovingly described in this play. It's one of the few pieces of nature writing that's that's stunning in uh, in in uh, Athenian Greek. So the the, the 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 landscape, the the local little gods and goddesses and nymphs and and you know the deities of the of the field and stream. This is all part of of the play. And if you love your country, then you love the shrines. Conversely, I would say if you hate your country, you want to break all the stained glass windows and dig up the tombs of the kings of France, or you want to you want to desecrate the tomb of uh, of. Uh, it, as was done during, the, uh, during uh, Tudor England.
0: Yes, uh, those are uh, very unfortunate things that unfortunately I have to uh, be reminded of on, on a nearly daily basis. Um, <laughs> but thankfully, I have a good opportunity to educate some of my guests as well as to the reality of things. So you're, you're talking about burial within Athens, and what's interesting is he's going to be buried as a citizen. And uh, yes. it is, it, I think it's such a significant moment. Theseus does it by fiat. He says, you know, you are. Uh, you are a citizen. We don't think of any of the paperwork and the tests and all the sort of things we have to do to get citizenship these days. Uh, The, the idea that the King would confer that upon you, it's such a momentous moment. And I I wonder if we, uh, there's two questions here. The, the, the Greeks clearly got the momentousness of this, I think from the play itself, but I wonder if we don't really get how momentous it is for the King to make Oedipus, uh, this stranger, a citizen. Um, uh, what, what how how would you how would you look at that scene yeah. from from a modern
1: in uh, America if you put up so many hundreds of thousands of dollars a chi- a chinese crooked businessman can be, is given citizenship i mean there's now a, there's a dollar fee i think it's 800,000 dollars mm. the uh for you could move to athens your children could be born there you could be a a, a successful businessman and contribute to the athenian war effort and you are still not a citizen Lysias, the speechwriter his father was an arms manufacturer who moved to athens Lysias knew everybody was connected to everybody and near the end of the civil war between the democrats and the so-called thirty tyrants he was allegedly awarded citizenship, and then it was taken back. Athens was like a lot like uh, traditional Switzerland. You simply don 't get citizenship if you 're an alien. It can be later on during the Hellenistic and Roman periods that you know rich people would be given citizenship for for various things but but in the period we 're dealing with this is a, this is an It's not quite unprecedented, but almost unprecedented act. And it is, of course, because Oedipus is going to die. As a semi divine creature, he's going to, and we'll t- we can talk about this later. He is, his status after death is that of hero. Now, hero does not mean <clears throat> Iron Man or Batman, hero means somebody who has been such a benefactor to us, uh, either mankind or to a group of, of human beings, that after death he holds power within the community. And that his you go to his shrine and you and you and you can seek you can get power from just being there. So by Oedipus being buried within Attica, within Attic uh, uh, territory, and of course uh, he. Uh, strengthens Athens, especially in any conflict it will have with Thebes. And this is precisely why Creon wants to get the body. They don't want to actually have him in Thebes, but they want to be able to keep him a prisoner till he dies and then use his sacred relics in any future war with athens even though at this point it's made very clear that there's no hostility between uh, thebes and athens so the 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 extreme importance of of a of Oedipus becoming Athenian, becoming, and it's not even naturalized because they barely have that concept. To be an Athenian meant you're descended from Athenians. Now, in the course of Sophocles' lifetime, even, the law had been changed. Pericles had introduced a law which said that it was not enough to have an Athenian father. You had to have an Athenian mother in order to be a full citizen, and people were disenfranchised. Long academic debates about why this was so, uh, the two theories are, one, it was to limit welfare, because if you were an Athenian citizen, you could row in the fleet or serve on jury duty, and it was the equivalent of a stipend from the government. More importantly, it was the aristocracy who married foreigners, Pericles' political rivals all had foreign blood in them because they made dyna- their families made dynastic marriages, especially up in Thrace, where Thracian princesses lived on land that controlled huge amounts of silver and gold. And so members of especially the Philead clan would, would marry, and they even had Thracian names within, within their family, like Olorus um so it it 's partly to 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 limit that part to to dish his rivals and partly to limit citizenship, but in any event. In Sophocles' lifetime, they had tightened up the rules. It was harder. It was harder then to become a citizen than it had been a generation earlier. So for them to be a citizen meant you could prove that your parents were citizens. That meant you had to be registered in a religious brotherhood, and those brothers, the frateres, would testify in a trial that, that your father had taken you and registered you and that, that you had impeccable bloodlines. To be a citizen, was, it's not simply a civil thing. It's not, I've gone through, I've, fill, I've filed the paperwork, I've paid my taxes, I've done you, this, you are, I'm now a citizen. No, right. it meant you were part of a corporate body that, 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 that you couldn't escape from if you wanted to.
0: You you mentioned Switzerland, Dr. Fleming, and I I spent a couple summers working in Switzerland and I, I absolutely adore it. And I've done a bit of research into Swiss citizenship. And I think the it's so uh, when you read what the rules are, they're so astonishing that I think they shock you into realizing what citizenship really means. It's along yeah. the lines what you've been discussing. So if you're born in Switzerland it, and you're, you don't come from Swiss parentage, you're not eligible for citizenship until 15 years of residence. It counts yes. double if you're in school, but when you yeah. do get to that age, you can be vetoed by a single vote from your canton. And I, right. I, I, I spoke to someone who got vetoed ten years in a row by this one crotchety old man. And after the yeah. tenth year, and after you know a countless you know nth discussion, the guy said, "All right, you know I think you're I think you're okay," and he changed his veto. And so this guy finally got to become a citizen, but ultimately that, that's, that's community. That's what citizenship means. And, and we're hey, in no, the it,
1: You know, I, I, knew a, I knew a man, a very, a very great uh, gr- a Greek scholar at the University of Zurich. He was German, his wife was German. He moved to, to Switzerland when he was fairly young and, and took up this professorship. They had two sons. You know, again, these are German. These aren't, these aren't uh, you know, Tibetans. <laughs> They're not wild American Indians. These are Germans are from, from across the border, speaking German. Uh, the sons were, were born there, and uh, they were brought up. They served in the army. They did everything. They appealed year after year for citizenship, and because you have to be accepted both at the, at the, at the federal level, at the level of the canton, and the level of the commune. So uh, they would always get vetoed. I mean, well, these were upper middle class kids who had spent their whole life in in, in Switzerland. They were German, but um, they said they were they were giving up. Mm. And I and I think now, that seems to me extreme. And societies have to open themselves up to a, to some degree to people of talent coming in, but better to be extreme the way the Swiss are than to just than to do what the United States does, which basically says, "Come on down, there's you, there's welfare here, come and get it."
0: So what Dr. Fleming is saying is, extremity in defense of liberty is no vice. <laughs> No, <laughs> I am no Carl Hess or Barry Goldwater admirer. <laughs> um, I we I obviously, Doctor blooming, we've we've opened up a, a whole uh, number of discussions, and uh, we could spend another forty five minutes. We've, we spent close to forty five minutes already. Uh, we need to move on to the next play, and the bridge that I'm going to use for this is Creon, because Creon does something I alluded to when we in the first episode. This American idea of I'm going to go grab somebody in someone else's country and and uh, through rendition bring them to go torture them in someone else's country. Um, he disobeys, uh, uh, you know, disrespects the rules of hospitality, which is one of the most fundamental Greek uh, values. Is this idea of strangers, hospitality, etc. And he's this repetition of. Oedipus, we see this mirroring of what happened originally. And we've talked about King Lear, we've already we, we've talked about Hamlet. This isn't the last Shakespeare play we're gonna we're gonna talk about, but Macbeth, that idea of the kingdom reflecting the health of the king. And if the king's sick, the kingdom is sick as well. And Creon goes through the same accusation cycle that we saw Oedipus do in the first play. You're all against me, this is some conspiracy, I'm not gonna yield, I'm gonna do my thing and it yields for Creon the same result it does for Oedipus. Complete disaster.
1: Yes. The, the difference, the one big difference between the character of Creon and the character of Oedipus is that Oedipus is the outsider when he comes to Thebes. He is the brilliant, talented man who makes his own way because he's a, he has, he's a genius. Creon's more of an organization man. You know, and he views the polis, the city-state of Thebes, he regards it as a kind of corporation that's set up, and when you belong to this kind of corporation, you follow orders. And, and of course, he would have said with Louis XIV, «L'état c'est moi», the, the, uh, «I am the state, don't ask me, no, the polis is me, I am the ruler». And I, Im- I make edicts which everybody has to obey, not because I'm a tyrant, but because I am the embodiment of the law. And uh, so he speaks in the name always he speaks of the name of the city, not not of his own will, and the city takes precedence over all other human relations and th- this is uh, this is a uh, something that 's beginning to develop in the Greek world in the fifth century the the elevation of the city state above kinship and and friendship and other forms of loyalty. Because they're Greeks, it doesn't go all that far. It goes nowhere near so far as it went, say, starting in the Renaissance and in our world. But Creon embodies that tendency, the tendency to elevate political relations above those of friendship and kinship, which for the ordinary Greek counts far more than the state.
0: And and I think... Dr. Sami, obviously you contrast Creon with our title character here, Antigone. Can you give us again, as I asked you to do with the with the the, second, the play that we covered in the first part of this episode, give us a quick synopsis of this play? Yes. Well, at
1: the beginning of the play, the it is just after The disastrous war of the seven against Thebes. Aetiocles and Polynices had shared power. Depending on the version of the story, one or the other had cheated and tried to stay in power. Polynices gets driven out and he goes to Argos and recruits. Six great champions, great, six great soldiers, some of the greatest men, including King Adrastus of, of Argos, including Amphiraeus the Seer, uh, by the way, of whom Aeschylus says he wanted not just to seem, but to be good, a, 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 a term that is later picked up by, Jew, uh, by a, uh, Lucan and applied to Cato the Younger, and becomes the motto of uh, South Carolina. Essere quam But but uh, so at the end of the war, the every, the the the, uh, the Thebans have successfully resisted the invasion, but the two brothers have killed each other, fulfilling you know this terrible curse that their father put on them. And Creon, who is the brother of Jocasta. the the mother and wife of Oedipus, so Creon has become the ruler. And he says, Ateocles will be given all the honors, the deserving, a man who defended his country, Uh, whereas Polynices, the outsider brother who led an invasion, his body will be left to rot and be picked at by dogs and birds, which, for the Greeks, is a terrible thing because if they uh, were on the, on the level of mere superstition that to, to abuse the corpse actually could affect the, 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 the spirit in the next world, sort of like uh, an American Indian worrying about having his corpse mutilated. Now, 5th century Greeks probably didn't believe that so much, but they believed that it was a sign of a cruel and disgusting hatred to, to abuse a corpse. And of course, this is a very important part. You know, the end of the uh, the end of the Iliad when Achilles is dragging the body of Hector around and around and around, and he won't give it up to the family. Right. So uh, Creon is acting in in, a, in this very abusive way. Those of you who have seen a movie with well, which I have two feelings about, um, which is uh, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. The one of the things which. Drives Eastwood over the edge is when his partner, is uh, it Morgan Freeman? His partner is killed by the sheriff and then stuck up like a freak, you know, to be to be mocked by people who pass by. Now, this is something which perhaps in the old West nobody would care too much about, but in the world, in the Greek world, it is an ultimate crime. Against against the victim and the and the fam- the next of kin or the best friend of the victim must get revenge. You know at that point in the movie that if you've read the Iliad, you know, or or much or the uh, or the Antigone, you know, Gene Hackman is going to have to die. Uh. So this is the situation, Antigone asks her sister Ismini to help her. Ismini says, oh, we can't go against our uncle, he's so strong. And, you know, the Commonwealth, and we have laws, we can't violate the laws. And Antigone, uh, rather cruelly, you know, uh, insults her. And, and Antigone's argument throughout, and this is, it's very hard to get this from uh, the translations that are normally used, her argument is that she says, I was born for love. And she uses both the word in various parts of it, both eros, you know, romantic love. She's in love. She is to be married with to uh, Creon's son, Haman. And she, she loves Haman. And she's looking forward to marrying him and having children and leading a normal Greek life, which would mean a life in which she basically stays in the women's quarter and, you know, does her weaving. And and, and you know, very. there's no reason to think that she's anything but a conventional girl. Unfortunately... She and her sister Ismini are in a very specific legal condition. When uh, a father dies and, and has no male heirs, no no sons, the question is where does where does the property go? Well, if he has no daughters, the property will go to his male next of kin according to certain formulas. If he has daughters they inherit not only the property, but also the responsibilities for maintaining the family. Things that men were supposed to do, they now have to do. Now, in Athens, what happens is they're supposed to marry a close male relative of their father, like an uncle or first cousin. And if the girl is already married, she can theoretically be forced to divorce her husband to marry the new person. This doesn't seem to happen. What happens is they they get together and they divide the estate, because that's that's the money that's involved. So poor Antigone, whether she wants to or not, she is now in the position of being what the Greeks call an epikleros, the heiress, the inheritor and she therefore has the responsibility the primary responsibility of a greek heir is to take care of the corpse uh, to bury the, the to bury the dead ancestor and to make sure that all religious rites are observed not just at the funeral but in years to come there are festivals in the athenian calendar where you go and and symbolically feed the dead you know very very much like uh, like our, our own uh, our own uh, All Saints and All Souls days. So this, this obligation, technically it falls on both Antigone and Ismini, but Ismini being uh, a little bit timid, and Antigone is portrayed as the elder sister, she, uh, she has sh- the obligation to maintain her family, to maintain these religious rights, and in her view, she has no choice. If she is going to be the loyal daughter of her father and a sister and part of this this long line of of cursed people in this family it her it is friendship, philia, and love that drive everything she does, and it doesn 't matter what government might say. Government cannot tell you to murder your baby government cannot tell you to uh, that, uh, wh- whom you can marry. I mean, government basically doesn't dictate these things. These things are part of a social life of kinship that goes way be- much deeper than the political. And that's why this play is so important for moderns to read.
0: Well, and you know that moderns are going to backwards read that Antigone is the first feminist or one of these proto right. feminists. And, and how would you respond to that, Dr. Fleming?
1: Well, the, 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 it's interesting that uh, most of the feminists in classics who have made that argument, and God knows there have been hundreds of them, they don't seem to know anything about Athenian law. A, uh, uh, the first person I knew who was doing women's studies <clears throat> in classics and was a moderate feminist, kind—you know the old-fashioned individualist feminist, was Mary Lefkowitz at Wellesley. And uh, Mary was a friend of mine. I met her first uh, when I was in graduate school. She came to give a lecture. She was, a, she was a, a good scholar. And Mary got interested in women's studies, which is a valuable thing to be interested in. And she started working on this stuff. And so she wrote an absolutely brilliant article. Which I've just ripped off in explaining that Antigone has to be understood as an epikleros, as somebody who has inherited a position within her family, and if she is going to live up to the code of Athenian life, she has to do what she's doing. And she says this over and over and over. She says, you see, the, the, if you look through the language and under in, a, in the Greek and underline every use of the word friend or friendship to explain uh, what, her conduct, I mean, it's every page is full of little tick marks.
0: Hmm. Well, to, to, I want to go down that family rabbit hole a bit, Doctor. I one of the things that's troubling about what what's troubling to, to some people is that Antigone says that she would have done this for only her brother she wouldn't have done this for her son or for her husband but she's doing it for her brother because he's connected to this line that's dead it can't that's right. she can't ever get another brother does this bother you should it bother us would it have bothered the greeks
1: the, uh, the, the that particular line is it is it is interesting because a uh, uh, probably a majority of classical scholars uh... market in square brackets they think it is an intrusion and that it is borrowed from a similar passage in herodotus where a woman a persian woman has to decide whether or not to ha- to save her brother her father or her son and she saves her brother using exactly this language Now, uh, Sophocles and Herodotus are contemporaries, and so it it, it is possible that one imitates the other. But I think more likely what we're dealing with is a commonplace of Greek argument, because you you can never get a second brother. But more importantly, a woman is never under Athenian law. A woman is not under a legal and moral obligation to do for her... Well, if her father were alive per uh, had just died, and she was the only one, but then she would be married to somebody who would carry out the obligation in this case certainly um, it is it is her legal position within the family that dictates what she has to do
0: if if we If we look at this uh, within within the context of the the play in general. Um, What about that that last part? I think uh, when you're saying in square brackets, is there any part of of the play that is also questionable as, as a part of Sophocles' original text?
1: Um, not much. You know, there's this theory which was advocated by Sir Dennis Page who, uh, on, um, uh, that actors in later performances interpolated lines borrowed from other plays or wrote them themselves because they just felt like doing it. Now we know... Uh, Page was a very learned man. I don't want to, to to criticize him. And we know that this goes on in the text of Shakespeare in the 17th and 18th century. The the Shakespeare texts that people were performing are sometimes hilariously rewritten uh, to accommodate them to accommodate the text to to the attitudes of the period. And so it's possible. Uh, the trouble is that a lot of this is really not. It's 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 one conjecture built on another. I tend to be like my mentor, Douglas Young, a textual conservative. You have to prove uh, the, the onus probandi, as he, as he would always say, the burden of proving is always on those who would change a text rather than those who wish to preserve the text. I would rather, and and I feel the same way, by the way, about uh, scriptural and theological interpretation, I'm willing to accept texts that seem bizarre in the Christian tradition, but they have to be read in light of everything else within the tradition, which then corrects it. And I think if uh, Sophocles got carried away, maybe remembering a line from Herodotus that he had heard, or, or just a, a commonplace, and if it's, if it's jarring, I think it's more likely that he wrote it, even if it is jarring. It's a slight overstatement, perhaps, but again, her her position in this play, she would not have this obligation to a sister or a mother. A father is a little different. But then a father has male, uh, has agnatic relatives, has, may, has male relatives who within his fratry would be uh, bound. Even if he didn't have sons, he's got male relatives. Whereas uh, Polynices has only Antigone.
0: We end this play in the same way the first play ends with a king um, broken and facing a, a disaster. Is Creon a sympathetic character for you, Dr.
1: Fleming? No. Um, he's sympathetic only in that he fi- he learns too late. He learns too late. And, and how does he learn? Well, he, he finds out that uh, his son has gone to kill himself. Uh, where uh, where uh, Antigone is buried alive, and by the way, a very it's a it shows part of Sophocles' dramatic brilliance. I mean, how, you know, they lock her up in this cave because they don't want the blood guilt to be on their hands for actually killing her, and she hangs herself while in there. Before you know, it's sort of a Romeo and Juliet thing. Before Haman can come and uh, join her, and he when. Creon begins to tumble to what's happening. He's, he's, you know, he, he realizes how wrong he has been, and why does he realize this? Because he loves his son. It's not because he has been worked through some uh, moral art reasoning from Descartes and Immanuel Kant. Or even from Socrates, he he knows he, because he's a Greek. He knows that love of kinfolk takes precedence over everything else, and he uh, in a, in a man's in a man's personal life, and he find he he realizes maybe not fully, but he begins to realize that his relationship to Haman is like Antigone's relationship to Polynices. It's not something you can dictate, and so he has lost everything: his wife at his son uh, because of his pig headed insistence on the law. The when greatest uh, moment in the play is remember, perhaps the most quoted parts of the play are not the uh, none of the dramatic scenes, but the beautiful ode which the chorus sings, the the the, the Pol- polapadena ode. There there are many many wonderful things, many terrible things, but none is more wonderful or terrible than man. It's um, The word deinos in Greek is very interesting, because it can mean very clever, it can mean wonderful, but it can also mean terrifying. Aeschylus had, had written a similar ode about there are many horrifying things in this world, you know, women who kill their children and things like that. And so here, Sophocles, very well, knowing what he's doing, he takes the same word, and he, and he says, "This is what man, man can do. Everything he tames the birds, he tames the sea. He has he has devices. He can, he has inventions by which he can he can do everything, but uh, but old age and death that they they elude his power. And he man is the most is the most astoundingly amazing creature that has ever uh, been on this earth.'" And as long as he uh, weaves together his, uh, his social instincts and his, his, uh, his, his, uh, his uh, regard for human law and his commonwealth with the laws of the gods, then he stands with his city. They stand high on a pinnacle. But if he disregards the divine, then he and his city collapse. And this is, you know, very early in the play, but this this is precisely Creon's fault. That is, he regards only the laws of his commonwealth, which, of course, are their human law. They're made by him, and not the laws of the gods, which dictate to any Athenian, or, in fact, any Greek, that the family, no matter what, what a louse your brother or father might have been, they have to be buried, They have, to, and the rites have to be carried out.
0: Well, and, and you alluded to uh, the, the blood guilt of, of, uh, of killing Antigone. Uh, to me, that's one of the most touching and important parts of this play, is this, uh, what's so wrong must be righted, and you're, you're disobeying natural law, you're disobeying divine law, and it will be righted, and uh, that's the challenge of Antigone, who is alive, being sort of buried alive and being put where the dead are and our dead um our dead polynices he's out there and he's out where the living should be and that this exactly. cannot stand the dead must be buried in the alive th- those who are alive must be free to live and it's fixed at the end but it's fixed at this terrible cost and i think moderns might see that as very heavy-handed but i think the greeks must have seen this is the only way that this could end
1: Yes, exactly, and you know we well, did the Greeks really, did the Athenians appreciate this? Well, you know, Sophocles won prize after prize for these plays, and these plays were then incorporated by the by the third, uh, by the fourth and third century, they were being taught to schoolboys. Clearly, uh, uh, clearly, the average. Uh, Athenian on the street got the mess, got much of the message, and knew knew very well, as he knew in uh, in seeing the Oedipus, that divine laws have to be uh, regarded and tre- and traditions have to be treated with reverence, or we become beasts, we become brutal. Um, you know, during uh, World War II, of course, the play was sort of recast as uh, an anti-Nazi play, or an anti-totalitarian play. Creon becomes a kind of cross in productions and rewrites, becomes a cross between Hitler and Stalin, and Antigone is the freedom fighter. And there is some truth in this, but not very much. And what it what it what that kind of and that's the way it was taught when I was a kid, you know, in school. If I, if so, that that wasn't they didn't teach the feminist view, but they taught uh, that uh, this it's the individual's right to stand up against the 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 state. Well, the Greeks don't have a word for state. They don't it doesn't really exist. the the, the Commonwealth, the polis, the city, the Commonwealth is made up of uh, of people who are from uh, different kin groups you know, and they, they belong to tribes and fratries and deems. It's complicated, but it's all rooted, rooted in kinship and religion. And Antigone's obligation is not as a uh, kind of Ayn Rand individual. I have, she's made up her own morality and is going to stick to it, but rather her decision is dictated by, uh, the, by the bonds of kinship as determined by religion. So it is. It she is acting as a corporate member of society, not as a libertarian rebel.
0: Hmm. Well, again, there's a lot more we could go into today, Doctor Fleming. I just I want to leave with uh, your reflection on the Greek sense of the text for one quote that struck me in particular. Of course, we'll see it in Macbeth, um, but the English translation that I had was "Sooner or later, foul is fair, fair is foul." the man's the god will ruin. Um, I'd like to get your sense of what the Greek version of this is, and as a way to sum up this trilogy of plays, because we're talking about the cursed house of Oedipus, which finds its end here. It's completely extinguished in this final play.
1: Um, A literal translation is in wisdom someone has revealed there's a famous saying that evil seems good to him whose mind the god is driving toward disaster but the normal the little guy fares through his time without ruin in other words a simple person living according to the code of his ancestors can get through difficult times by doing what's expected of him whereas uh, the man who wishes to be great and is, is led on by his own ambition and the gods trap him by making him think that, that what is evil, that is the evil things you have to do to seize power, as in, say, Macbeth, those that those evil things seem good to him. Um, and it, it's a, there's an invert to the power seeker, to those who wish to be president of the United States, for example. There's uh, the the there's a Nietzschean inversion of value. It's something, by the way, that Sophocles' contemporary Thucydides talks about when he describes the civil war on uh, on uh, Corsira that is, on the island of Corfu where he says, you know, as the parties developed, one was pro-Spartan, one was pro-Athenian. As the parties developed, and they developed party strategy and party propaganda, he said words began to change their meaning. And good old words like uh, like loyalty and friendship came to be used to mean lo- loyalty to a party and a willingness to to uh, betray your friends and family for the sake of the party and he goes on and it's it's the first brilliant Machiavellian analysis of uh, the, the pursuit of power and what Sophocles is saying here is this kind of this corruption in uh, in morality is uh, is is what drives on those who seek power and obviously we're talking about Creon here.
0: Well, I normally would ask uh, Dr. Fleming at the end of one of these episodes if if there's anything that we didn't talk about that he would like to talk about, but I know that would lead to another two-hour episode. So what I'm going to say is if you listeners, having read the play and listened to these two episodes, have things that you'd like Dr. Fleming to develop further, please send them in, and I'll give the email address in a moment. Please send them in, and what we'll do is we'll build an episode around your questions. So make sure you do not, you do not get to send in questions if you have not read the plays. <laughs> so you have to have, read the, you have to have part of your assignment is reading the plays and listening to these episodes. So you understand all the background that Dr. Fleming is giving you. Once you've done that, then you get to ask some questions and we'll know from your questions, whether you have read the plays or not. So don't try to sneak in and we'll build a, a third future episode. It won't necessarily be the next in sequence uh, around that. And, uh, As always, Dr. Fleming, thanks so much for your time. It's been an interesting and stimulating discussion, not just for me, but hopefully for our listeners. Thank you. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email Thomas at Fleming.Foundation to my earlier uh, direction. Please put Sophocles in the subject line. We want to remind you that Christianity and Classical Culture is a production of the Fleming Foundation All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to james at fleming.foundation. As always, thanks to our gold and charter members who we produce these podcasts for and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time. And until next time, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.